Our text this morning comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, and it reads this way. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy and he will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this is the sixth month for her who is said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, here am I servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Father, we have come in this particular day and in this particular season as a people who long to experience anew the coming of Jesus in our lives and in the world. And as we journey to that familiar nativity scene, may we have our imagination sparked in a new way about what all of this could possibly mean. And so we need you to speak, O God, for your people are listening. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. This morning not only marks the beginning of a new sermon series that we're titled in God is in the Manger, it marks the beginning of a new Christian calendar year. The concept of the Christian calendar for many of us might be new or unfamiliar, uh, but it's the way in which the church and the people of God tell and inhabit the story of God. Uh, Consider just for a moment the way that, that our national or secular calendars operate in the world in America is that we organize time in a particular way with holidays that commemorate meaningful people and events in the year as a way of reminding ourselves as Americans the story that we inhabit. And so we have throughout the calendar year certain days in which we commemorate meaningful leaders who embody the the ethos of our church. And so we have days like, you know, George Washington Day and Abraham Lincoln, President's Day weekend in February. We have days in which we celebrate meaningful figures like Martin Luther King Jr. in January to to remind us that there's this this sense of racial justice that, that has been a part of our story for hundreds of years that we're still trying to work out. We even have a whole month, right, dedicated to remembering this element of our history as Americans. We're reminded of the sort of values that we maintain as Americans on July 4th. Uh, the, the idea of, of freedom for individuals, freedom of markets, and it goes on and on and on. But, but essentially, that day reminds us that as Americans, we inhabit this story of freedom. 
We tell the story of our nation's heroes on Memorial Day and on Veterans Day. And then we participate in a, in a culture of consumerism every single Black Friday, because this is who we are, right? The day after we're supposed to give gratitude and thanks for everything that we have, we spend 24 hours up at 1 o'clock in the morning trying to get all that we don't have. It's an interesting sort of juxtaposition. I wonder what that says about us. But the point, though, is that the calendar that we recognize, that we use to organize our time, they... They tell a story and allow us as Americans to live into a story of inhabiting a story. And this is what the Christian calendar is all about. And it reminds us that we inhabit an alternative story than the one that the world tells us to live within. The church and the people of God have been invited to live into a different kind of story. We tell the story of our great leaders. Advent usually focuses in on John the Baptist. Uh, we have, obviously, Jesus throughout the Christmas season, and we have Moses in the Lenten season. We're reminded of the Christian ethos of crucifixion and resurrection every single Holy Week. We participate that this is the value and this is sort of way of life that we lean into is, is that we have to die in order to live. Throughout the year, there are a variety of, of days in which there are saints who are commemorated. In fact, Bryant Doherty actually showed me this book, and he was like, here's the saint for your birthday, if you were just curious about it. And our church's following of that calendar, the Christian calendar, is a way of reminding us of the story that we are not just telling, but the one that we are seeking to live into as Christians. It's a story of hope and joy, of wilderness and frustration, of life and de uh, death, a story of a new kind of family. It's the story of God. It's the gospel story, and it is a Christian story. And the story begins every single year on this Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is a season that, that is marked by the, the four Sundays leading into Christmas. Can you believe we're only four Sundays away from Christmas? That like, like makes my mind explode every time I think about it. But the season often focuses on John the Baptist and the one who is crying in the wilderness. And, and really the theme is about this idea that, that we're anticipating Christ coming to us on Christmas morning. And so every Sunday we have this Christ candle. I don't know if you notice that I do this. Every Sunday we have this white candle that represents the presence of Christ to us. It's not the actual presence of Christ, but symbolically it reminds us that Christ is here with us. But we don't light it during Advent because we're a people who are anticipating and longing for Christ to come. And there are four themes traditionally celebrated at Advent, hope, joy, love, and peace. And this year, we're, we're moving away from those traditional themes and we'll be unpacking a less familiar Advent theme. Uh, the four that we're gonna be focusing in on are mystery and uh, waiting, redemption and incarnation. And the the goal for this year is to get away from what is so familiar and to embrace the mystery of Christmas. You see, the peril of familiarity in the Christian life is that we cease to be moved by mystery. We cease to embrace the wonder that is the Christian faith. It's so easy for us to, to sing familiar songs, to tell familiar stories, to participate in familiar traditions during the Advent season, and consequently to think that we have this totally understood, that we know all about the meaning of Christmas. There's nothing new to discover here. We're just doing the same thing that we've done every single year. But the mystery of the Christian faith is that there's infinite discovery 
in the story of God. When we use the word mystery often in our culture, we usually use it in a way to describe something that we don't understand. And so we have questions like, why, why is God taking so long to return? You know, what is actually going on in the world? And we're like, oh, well, it's just a mystery. And, and really what we're saying is like, I have no idea, but this sounds better than saying I don't know. But what's mysterious about faith then is, is our unknowing or the lack of our knowing things about God. But there's a different way of thinking about mystery that I want us to consider this Advent season. And that is this, that mystery is infinite discovery. Mystery as endless revelation. Mystery as more meaning. When Paige and I got married uh, six and a half years ago now, I knew a fair amount about her. Uh, I, we likely wouldn't have gotten married if I didn't know a fair amount about her, right? I don't know, some people do that, but that wasn't like my thing. I knew about her focus and her discipline and her work ethic. I knew that she had this deep capacity for faithfulness in relationships and intimacy with friends and myself. I knew that, that she could see through a person's flaws and see the inherent goodness that existed within them, which is a, a nice way of saying she doesn't judge people, maybe in the way that I do, unfortunately. And then we got married, and I learned that there was so much more to all of those qualities. She worked so much harder. Her intimacy was cultivated in a, in a very different way in our relationship. I saw up close and personal how much she invested emotionally into her friendships and relationships. I, I saw how, how she experienced her own emotions. I saw how she went about sort of with a sense of purpose and intention in her life that I had not seen in our dating life. And, and there were things that I just came to a deeper understanding and appreciation for. But then there were things that were new that I had not known about Paige and I discovered them for the first time in our married life. And then we had a kid. Then we moved together for the first time in a real serious life transition here in Ventura a couple years ago. Then we had another kid at the beginning of COVID. Then she taught during COVID while watching our kid. And all along, it's been this journey of constantly discovering who my wife is. And hopefully she feels the same about me. I don't know if she does. But I've learned not to restrict her into some kind of box that I've figured out. This is who Paige is, and this is exactly who she is. And just when I think I know how she's going to respond to an event or a comment, I'm caught off guard by the fact that she responds in a different way, and she still surprises me. I've not been married for 50 years or anything like that. I'm not even 50 years old, as many of you like to remind me. But I hope that, that this sense of surprise never goes away, that that though I become increasingly familiar with her, I can continue to discover more about her. This is what it means to embrace the mystery of the Christian faith. It's not just that we don't know things, it's that there's an infinite depth of knowing things about God. You never get to the bottom of that well. We will never exhaust our knowledge and understanding of God. The mystery isn't that we don't know, but there's always something more to know. And the way that we, as a church, within the Christian faith, are to embrace mystery is through a posture of wonder within the life of faith. We might say to have a sense of curiosity about our faith and the story of God that we see in the scriptures. One of the great gifts of being a parent to young children or being a grandparent or even just being around little kids is that we get to experience the world 
with a sense of wonder and curiosity that long fades after you become an adult. Just recently, Levi learned that his grandparents are my parents. And this blew his mind. The idea that I was a baby and that I was in his grandma's tummy. Like, he just learned this a couple months ago, and it absolutely shattered his world. I, I remember I first told him, I was like, you know, grandma, she's my mom. And he was like, no, she isn't. And I was like, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, she is. And, and so just this past week, actually, they were up for Thanksgiving, and they had brought in their dog, Bella. And uh, one of the neighborhood kids was in our house, and they, they asked you know, who is this dog, Levi? And Levi goes, he goes, that's my dad's parents' dog. <laughs> it's like, not my grandparents' dog, that's my dad's parents' dog. And he loves to describe my grandparents as my parents. So he'll say like, hey, did you know your parents are coming this week? And I'm like, oh my gosh. But there's something so refreshing and compelling and attractive about wonder and curiosity, even in the simple things to see the world as something to be discovered and surprised by, rather than something that we've mastered. And this is true of faith. It is, in part, a basic goal of mine in every single sermon that I preach, to spark a sense of curiosity and wonder about the scriptures and the God that we've come to worship, about the world that we inhabit and live in, both present past and future. You see, so many people think of the sermon as the activity by which we are given answers, explanations, and applications of how to integrate this into our life, how the biblical text is supposed to speak into our lives. And there are times, for sure, no doubt, that that is appropriate in the case. But there are other times that the proclamation of the word of God isn't about offering definitive answers, but about inviting you to wonder to be curious about this God who loves you and the world, to provoke questions about the mystery of the Christian faith. I've often wondered, it would, it would be awesome if people left after hearing a sermon with more questions than they had answers. A reminder to me and to us that there's so much more to know about this God that we worship Take the familiar scene of our text this morning. The angel Gabriel has gone to Nazareth to this Nazarene girl. Amen. And he appears to Mary. And it seems like a story that we're all familiar with. Gabriel, the angel, sort of like pops into existence. We're going to brush past that because we don't know exactly how that works logistically because it sounds really odd and weird. But it's a familiar story to us nonetheless but here's the crazy thing, when you, when you set that story within the context of the story of the Bible, is that God has not spoken to the people of God for 400 years. Between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament are four centuries of time in which God has not spoken. God has been silent. And suddenly, into the silence, through the angel Gabriel, God speaks these words, rejoice, the Lord is with you. God is with you, and God has been with you. But why does God choose to speak now? And why did this girl, why to Mary, why was God silent for centuries? What was God up to in those 400 years, anything? Why not speak at the temple? Why in this sort of random podunk town of Galilee? Why to this lowly woman 
And then the angel announces to Mary that she will bear the Son of God. The angel shares with her that her cousin Elizabeth, who's also been barren her entire life, is in old age. She is pregnant, in fact. And for differing reasons, these two women, Mary because she's a virgin and Elizabeth because she's barren, are told that they are going to have sons. Why does God do the, the Jesus story this way? Why does God choose to use these women, one old and one young, one dishonored because she couldn't have kids and one dishonored potentially because she got pregnant outside of marriage, to be the agents through which he would announce and give birth to the Messiah of the world? And why through the scriptures does God constantly do this thing with barren women, right? They they were seen as lesser and less valuable, as useless, as disposable, because they couldn't have children, but over and over in the Genesis story, in Exodus, we see in Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Hannah, these women who were barren and useless, God redeems them in their lives to do something marvelous. And Mary is told in our story that she's going to bear the life of God in her womb, the Son of God. There couldn't possibly be more of a stark contrast between those things. The transcendent word of God through whom all creation was spoken into existence is going to dwell in the womb of some unmarried Middle Eastern girl from an obscure town in Galilee that we only know about because it's in the Gospels. How and why? There is endless depth of understanding the scriptures and the story. But what's more is the mystery of how these scriptures unceasingly speak into our lives. You see, the mystery of our text isn't just that God spoke to Mary, it's that God speaks at all. What does it mean that God is a God who speaks? What does it mean that God speaks to ordinary folks, not just like Mary, but like you and me? What does it mean that that God is speaking today? How do we become the kinds of people who could discern the voice and speaking of God in our lives so that we know what God is saying? How do we become those kinds of people? And how is it that, that God is able, in the midst of our barrenness, to bring about new life, the life of Christ in us? How does God go about in the midst of our trauma and difficulties and addictions and distorted emotions and unhealthy patterns of living and bring about the life of Christ in us? How is it that God is doing that work in you this day even though you don't feel like you could be that kind of person? I literally was talking to one of my neighbors on Friday night and they know that I'm a pastor and they're weirded out by that. And he goes... Do you need to have all of your life together in order to come to church, Aaron? How is it that God can take a person like that and say, I want to birth new life in the midst of the barrenness there? And how is it that we, filled with the same spirit that filled Mary, bear the life of Jesus Christ in us? How is it that we are the ones through whom God is going to birth new life into the world? How can God possibly use us to bring into existence, into history, the life of Jesus Christ 
in the world today. I mean, just look at us. Who are we? We're just like random people that showed up to church this morning. But like Mary, God is wanting to birth new life, his life, in you. How are we to carry the life of Christ in us with faithfulness and seriousness and joy? What are the ways that we experience the subtle movements of Christ in our collective life together as Mary did in her womb? It isn't just the word is going to be made incarnate in Mary. It's that the word continues to be made incarnate in the church, in you and me. How does that all happen? See, the beauty of embracing mystery through wonder is that it enlarges our faith. When we come to the text and we come to the story with a sense of curiosity and wonder, our faith can begin to grow and become more than what it was. Wonder enlarges our faith. On August 31st, 31st, yes, 1803, Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, and the Corps of Discovery Expedition set out to cross the newly acquired land that had been given to the United States through the Louisiana Purchase. And the prevailing thought of the day was that there was a river that would connect the Midwest and the Pacific Ocean. For 300 years, explorers from at least four sovereign nations had been looking for that land route or that water route that was running from the middle of the country to the Pacific Ocean. They wanted and believed that there was some sort of river or, or, water, or body of water that connected the Mississippi River and the Pacific Ocean. And the hope was that if you could find that water route, you could easily create a passageway for travel and commerce in the country. So Lewis and Clark, as they're sort of commonly known or referred to, they set out on canoes on the Missouri River in what is now sort of modern-day Illinois. And the plan was essentially to canoe to the Pacific Ocean, and if they had to change rivers at some point, they would just sort of carry their canoes and jump onto the new river. And when they traveled as far west as they possibly could via canoe, when the river ended, what they discovered is that there was no way to navigate to the Pacific Ocean on water. There was no water route to the Pacific Ocean. There was no Northwest Passage. Instead, they found mountains as far as the eye could see in West Montana and Eastern Idaho. The driving assumption of the brightest, most adventurous, entrepreneurial minds of their time had been absolutely mistaken about what the land and the world was like. Lewis's core of discovery, I discovered that the entire sort of mental model regarding the continent was really wrong and off. Uh, for the second assumption was that in, in the minds of the explorers of the day, that the geography west of the continental divide was going to be the same as the geography east of it. And all had assumed that in the same way the land had sort of gently rose for thousands of miles to a peak, it would also descend gently into the Pacific Ocean. And at that moment, everything that Meriwether Lewis assumed about his journey changed. He was planning on exploring the new world by boat. He was a river explorer. They planned on rowing, and they thought the hardest part was behind them. But in truth, everything they had accomplished was only a prelude to what was in front of them. See, the realization that there was more to the expedition, more than they were prepared for, more than they anticipated, and completely different 
than what they had planned on only expanded the adventure of Lewis and the core of discovery. And this is what it's like to embrace mystery through wonder and curiosity. Is that you recognize that there's so much more to God and the faith and the, what we hold on to today. And this matters during Advent because we realize that despite the world's brokenness, there is even more hope than we realize. There is more joy to be had in our lives. There is more peace, more justice, more love, more understanding, more life change, but it requires us in humility to be like the young children who enter the kingdom of God, as Jesus teaches, to experience God with a sense of wonder and curiosity. May it be so for us in the weeks and days to come. In the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.